Hello, all you Covey Club reinventors out there. It's Leslie Jane Seymour. And here's my question for you today. We know that we don't control everything that happens to us in life. And sometimes people have more than their share of things that are tough. And then what's amazing is when you meet the people who've had things that are more tough than you have, perhaps, you're shocked at how they prevail over that and how they get on and how they are tough enough to deal with all these things. And such is the case with Emily Rapp Black. She's a multi-author. She has a new book coming out called Frida Kahlo and My Left Leg. And that's going to be in June. Uh, she's Frida Kahlo obsessed, as you'll find out. She has a memoir out that's called Sanctuary that's already out and her first um, memoir, Poster Child, and, the, and on and on and on. She's written for everybody. She is now an associate professor of creative writing at UC Riverside and at UCR School of Medicine. Um, she's just an amazing, amazing person, amazing writer, amazing giver. Um, and when she was little, she was growing up with a disability and she didn't really know that she had a disability as she says that she didn't realize it was anything. Her goal was to pass and be as normal as possible, which is what a lot of us do. Even if we don't have a disability, we think we have something that other people don't like. And, and how, do we, how do we get by with that and become the people that we are? And yet she went, out, went on and she became this fabulous, very accomplished writer. And she got married, she had a child, she had, uh, the child died of Tay-Sachs, which was uh, something unexpected. And then she went on and had another child. She has a, a, a daughter who's healthy and is wonderful. And she continues to write and she continues to teach and she has had to reinvent herself several times. And yet when you hear her, you have to listen to her positive, giggly girlfriend attitude. It's really kind of amazing. And I think, I think you're gonna love her in the way that you love a new girlfriend and you're going to want to hear everything she has to say, both personally and in her books. So I just wanna welcome Emily Rapp Black to our podcast. Welcome, Emily. I'm so glad to talk to you today. Thanks for having me. I am so happy. I'm first of all, I'm so ecstatic that you're a member of Covey Club, which makes me really happy. I don't always get to interview people who are members of Covey Club <laughs> and who are so renowned and so absolutely accomplished. And um, it makes me proud to have you as a member. So Thank you, I love it. It's great. I love the biz group. I love all of the resources. It's been really great for me. Yay. Um, so let's talk a little bit about your reinvention. And let's go back to where you grew up. And how did you know you were going to be a writer? Did you know that as a 
baby. A baby. Did you come uh, out with a pen in your hand? I mean, there are, <laughs> there are some people, I'm telling you, there are people in my business who were editors in chiefs. I swear to God, they were born with a magazine in their hand. <laughs> That's funny. Um, I grew up in Wyoming, in rural Wyoming and Nebraska. So not a lot of exciting things happening there. Uh, but I did not think about being a writer just because in my family, it wasn't so much that you had a career, you had a job and being a writer felt and still is a very, very rarefied existence and felt like I didn't know anyone who made their living as a writer. Um, but I did know a lot of professors. My godfather is a Russian literature professor and my other godfather um, was a sort of a renowned physicist. So there was some kind of like, I don't know, vocational clues in their lives. I do, I did grow up reading the Bible as a, as a document and story, a way of framing experience. And I did used to rewrite my dad's sermons and then not tell him. And he would be up in the pulpit, like reading something. And he'd be like, oh, <laughs> which was actually really funny. <laughs> and I did it a couple of times. I'm like, maybe you should spell check these dad. But, uh, and I also would rewrite some of the Bible stories. I was obsessed with Laura Ingalls Wilder. So I would read those books. Like I had insomnia when I was six or seven. So I would just read all the way through the night about the prairie people. So I, I was always an avid reader, uh, partly because I was in the hospital so much. And also just, I love story. And so I gravitated towards story, but it wasn't until I was in graduate school in theology some decades later that I thought, oh, I, maybe I could be a writer. Like maybe that's the thing you do. So it wasn't until my twenties when I really started to think about it in a serious way. And how did that manifest itself for you? When did you start writing? Did you, did you start keeping a diary as a kid or did yes, you? I did. So I a, yeah, I definitely had a diary. It had a lock and I just got one for my daughter who's seven. And she put a little note on the front that said, please don't read Charlie's private diary. And I told my mom about it and she's like, oh, Yours had a note on top that said, read and die. I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> that was a little extreme, Emily. So I always wrote in a journal. I wrote bad poems in high school. I think like most high school girls, like really bad poems. And I, I used to sell my English. I used to do people's homework for money. Like I, this is so bad, but I used to write sonnets and I would write essays. And I was kind of like cleaning up with a little cash business there in high school. So it was always like, I was never good at math. I wasn't science in, interested in science so I knew I was going to be in the humanities um and then when I was in divinity school my plan had always been to be a religion professor uh, and when I got there I was just like oh, I don't know if I want to do this with my life so there was an ad literally like an ad on a bulletin board it's like one of those moments and I was like create a writing class you had to apply so I went to the meeting and I applied and I had been writing stories sort of on the slide during my divinity school classes, mostly in the French existentialism class because I was like so bored and just kind of overwhelmed by it. And then I got accepted and my first teacher, Brad Watson, who actually recently died uh, suddenly a couple of years ago, was just incredibly encouraging. And I loved the students that I met and I just thought, yeah, this is what I want to do. And so how did you start writing actually? So, and you became a professor first or what, how did that? Proceed? No, then I kind of meandered a little bit um, after grad school. And I then finally was like, I need to get an MFA. So I went to UT Austin 
And that's when I really started sort of understanding what it meant to be a writer as a vocation, what it meant to be a part of a literary community. I published some short stories. I started working on a novel. And that's when I started writing nonfiction, which I didn't even know was a thing until I got to grad school in 2001. So I had an amazing mentor there, um, uh, Laura, excuse me, Laura Furman and Steve Harrigan. And they were incredibly encouraging to me. And so I started working on a collection of essays that would become my first book, Poster Child. Uh, but I couldn't have done it without them. I mean, they were very, I mean, I worked really hard, but they were also incredibly patient and encouraging and kind of a model for the professor that I try to be now. And talk about your personal life and what you were writing about. And you're talking about, first of all, your, what was your dad? Was your dad a minister? Yes, he was a minister. Sorry, I forgot to mention that. My dad I figured. Yeah, my dad was a minister and my mom was uh, a nurse. Ah, uh, okay. School nurse. So, yeah. So my, I was writing about basically, you know, growing up with a disability. I have had worn an artificial leg since I was four. I had never really written about it and or thought about how it shaped my identity, which I know sounds completely weird, but this is before Instagram, before body positivity. And my whole goal was just to pass, you know, just to like be as normal as possible. Um, and so I did by and large, but of course then when I hit puberty, that kind of screeched to a shocking halt. And then when I was in um, Korea on a Fulbright scholarship, I kind of had like a nervous breakdown about it. Like I had never really thought about what it meant to be a disabled woman. And I just like kind of lost my mind. So it didn't lose my mind, but I came home and I started doing therapy and all that kind of stuff. So that was the stuff that I was writing about in nonfiction In fiction. I, you know, I'm not sure. Like I had some short stories that were set in the American West, like a lot of ranch culture, farm culture. I used to work on my parents or my grand, my great uncle's farm in the summers. I grew up around ranchers. So that was a lot of my early subject matter. Um, landscape oriented. And then I started doing a lot of stuff about the body and, you know, difference. And, and that became the thing that I've done now for a long time. And that I'm not necessarily moving away from, but I feel like I've said what I needed to say at this point. And what is that? How do you feel? I mean, as we're, you know, as we're talking about, um, you know, incorporating people who are different. Um, I think that's the tra trajectory we're struggling with in America overall. Anybody who doesn't look like, you know, the center patriarchy, what does that feel like for you? And do you feel it's changing in a positive direction? Or, I mean, that's so, I love the fact that you, you know, you didn't even think about it when you were little, that it was something different and something worth writing about. Yeah. And how did that change over time? I'm interested in like when you were younger, did you, you know, were we more open, less open? And do you feel like we're changing in a good way or a bad way? I would love to hear that. Yeah. I mean, I've always been really open, I think in part because I've never had any privacy. So people were always like, oh, how can you write nonfiction? It's so intimate. And I'm like, well, people have been asking me rude questions in elevators since I was four, like all my life. What happened to you? What's wrong with you? What happened to your leg? You know? blah, blah, blah. So I've never, now I've gotten better about sort of putting up the wall, which is actually why I write memoirs to say like, oh, the story's in here. You don't get any more. Here's this book. Um, goodbye. But I think, um, so yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's definitely getting better. It's, it's just, it's just different. Like I see these great 
kids with disabilities, teenagers with disabilities, they're talking about sex, they're talking about representation. Sex wasn't exactly something that my family talked about a lot because we were in a religious family. <laughs> it was sort of, that was, you know, you waited until you were married. That was like, that was what we got. Um, but of course, no one really does that. And uh, so when I hit puberty and I was like, oh, thinking about sex, I was like, oh, this leg is a, just that's a massive liability. And it was in some sense, partly more on my end than anyone else's. But also people were like, what is that? You know, it's not the ideal. And so I think that messed with me for sure. Um, and I think if I'd had access to what we have now on social media, I would have either A, lost my mind or B, been really encouraged by women who are openly sharing their bodies that don't align with a kind of centerfold of a magazine of any type, right? Um, so, so that's something that I still, I still struggle with. I mean, I'm much, I think it's probably, it's a function of age or it's just like, whatever, I'm just glad I'm alive. But I think I, I have a different appreciation for my body now um, and what it can do for me and what it can't. And that's okay. It's just, I think that's kind of mellowing out. But for a long time I did spend, I just tried to be like, you know, I tried to make my body as normal as possible. And it was a lot of effort, a lot of dysfunctional eating or disordered eating, that kind of stuff. So I do think it's getting better. And my whole thing is that we need to, I mean, everyone's going to have a disability. It's just like not a thing you can avoid. It's either an accident or a disease or a decade away. And I think it's something that our culture has a hard time wrapping their minds around because it seems like from the outside, it's like this tragic, horrible thing. And if certainly like people who acquire disability later in life, that is really hard, but is it the end of their life? No, unless it actually is, it's just a massive identity shift. So I think I had to go through an identity shift later in life because I just never did it as a kid. Um, and I, maybe if I'd had therapy as a kid, I did not, no one did that in my community, then I would have had a different perspective, but I don't know if that answers your question, but I think it is, it's, it's better, it's better, but it's also the same, you know? Oh, interesting. But you do feel like there's an opening up and you, and you see the positive side coming out of social media, which has caused so much tragedy for so many people. You actually see it as, um, helping people like mind like-minded people put different images out there and normalize yeah I do I think it's I mean it's it's a mixed bag right it's like it, like you said it can be really destructive or it can be really productive I think it's just how you digest it first and who you follow and like curating that stream but yeah I definitely feel like there's no way I would have I'd never seen another person with a disability at all until I was in high school and started, or actually when I was in little and started disabled sports, that was the only time. And then when I was in the prosthetist office, it was all Vietnam vets. So my scope of what disability could look like was quite narrow. And now of course it's expanded quite a bit. Um, and, and so that is, that is a positive thing, but you know, we still have Trump mocking a disabled reporter our, our vernacular is littered with, with ableist words like crippling economy. Uh, I was paralyzed with fright. You know, um, every time you get on a plane, you know, don't damage, disable the, the smoke detector. Uh, that's so lame. Like all of these things that, have, that are words, derogatory words um, that we don't use 
like if you put a one-to-one -one comparison with other words we might use about other people who are not quote white dudes straight white dudes you would never use them so it's that to me is still like a bridge to to cross like why can't we remove that ableist language from our everyday speech that's so interesting i didn't you know i'm not in that community so i wouldn't be aware of it that's amazing and have you written about that have you done an op-ed I've done a lot of op-eds about different things. Um, not so much about that. I mean, I definitely, in my next book, the Frida Kahlo book uh, that's coming out in June, I kind of address that. I address it more straight on than I have in other, in other books. And it's something that I, you know, work a lot on with in my classes, with my students, because it's basically just like, if you don't call it out, it'll just keep, it'll just perpetuate itself. And so that's, you know, one thing that I'm, I, you know, I'm not like with the battle axe, like, but I, I definitely feel like once people start using different words, then it'll be, you know, that'll start a wave of using different words that, that, that depart from that pejorative um, classification. That's so interesting. So you're in the, you've been full on in the words have power. Oh yeah. Point of view. Yes, yes definitely. For a long, long time. That, but mm -hmm. see, that's so interesting. And because of where we are today, it's even more interesting because I think I think at the heart of a lot of what our divides are are about, you know, this whole idea of what you, you know, what you can say and what you can't say yeah. and how other, you know, living in a community where other people could be offended by what you say. And there's a group of people who just want to be whoever they are and you love it or leave it and accept it or don't accept it. And yeah, they don't want to think about having to, you know, be part of society that requires anything of them. Yeah. That's kind of, and this fits in there with, um, you know, how do you treat other people around you, which is very interesting. Mm -hmm. Now, what about becoming a mom and what about, you know, reinventing yourself and your point of view as you got older because you say as you got older you didn't really deal with this until you were much older correct yeah, that's right so um, talk a little bit about that because we're you know so you know i can say that a lot of a lot of the covey clubbers are late bloomers for whatever reason <laughs> i was a late bloomer on everything you know but um it's interesting and i don't know what that means but we tend to be yeah I mean, I, I definitely wanted to have kids and didn't know if I could or if I should or how I was going to manifest. Um, most of my peer group were having kids in their 20s and I was definitely not doing that. Um, so when I had my son in, he, let's see, 2010, so he would have been 11 this week. Um, I was, you know, like every new mom, just like, what? Like, it was amazing. He was a great little kid. It was a it was a challenge because I was teaching, you know, like most working women, I, you know, went back to work after a C-section after like three days, you know, <laughs> like I just, there was not a lot of break, but you know, that kind of, that also shifted when he was diagnosed with Tay-Sachs in nine months. And then I had to, then my whole idea of parenting was sort of shattered before it was fully formed. So that was really hard. And that's where my second book comes from is that sort of, how do you parent a child with no future? Like, where do we find value in that? What does it mean? Like, what is the world? Those kinds of big questions, which Divinity School probably prepared me for in some part, in some large part, actually. And then, of course, when he died, um, that was a different stage of grieving motherhood. Wasn't sure if I would have another child. I, I definitely wanted one. And then when I had my daughter in 2014, I mean, she's just like, 
I mean, she's such a great kid. I, I just feel so grateful that I did have another kid or that I was able to have another kid because she's, you know, she's just been the sweetest, easiest baby, healthy, fun, quote, normal. And, and it's just, it could not be more different than my other parenting experience. So in the book Sanctuary, I talk a lot about how so much about, you know, moving forward in life or moving along rather um, is about holding the both and like the grief and the joy can coexist and actually have to, because I don't want to, to discard the mother that I was to my son, because that was really important. And it's a huge part of my identity. And I also don't want it to um, to discard the way that I parent my daughter and that they're interwoven in this way that's often uncomfortable, but I don't want to discard either person. I want to try to integrate them. So, so that, that, I mean, being a mom to my daughter is just, it's so, it's not, I mean, it's not ever easy. Right. But it's, it's so different. <laughs> like it literally is like two different, completely different like sets of activities. It's a two separate lives. It couldn't be any more like the contrast couldn't be any more extreme. That's awesome. I love the fact that you had your daughter. That's just amazing. Yeah. yeah. So when you're talking about writing books and all that, did you find the transition to book writing very simple? Did you have to struggle with it? Did you have to go through any challenges? to get your books published or was it a pretty much straight line? Cause there are a lot of writers, as you know, yeah, no, I know. out there who are struggling. They may have one book in them. They may not be full-time writers, but they may have one thing they want to say. Um, and I always like to, to talk about the reality of how hard it can be um, to publish along the regular paths. Sometimes people have to go other paths to get mm -hmm. things done, mm -hmm. but uh, how that, how did that happen for you? Well, it was a slow, it was a slow burn, I would say, because, you know, I think a lot of people that are coming into writing later who've had other professions and careers, which is great. Like I teach a lot of grad students who are like, I'm 55 and I want to go back to school. I'm going to get an MFA. Like that's, that's one population of students that I teach at UC Riverside. Um, and I love that. I love the age diversity. It's not all just like 21, 22 year olds. So so I was invested in a community, you know, as soon as I decided I wanted to be a writer, I found writers and I became friends with them and I was supportive. And, and I think a lot of it comes down to being a really good friend and networking. And people often think of writing as a lonely thing, but actually can be really collaborative and energetic and awesome. So, and then when I was in Texas, you know, I just, uh, I worked really hard to write a book and I had time and was supported by a fellowship, which was awesome. And I was, you know, unfettered by any, you know, mothering duties or I, I had no money and it was awesome. And I just wrote and made friends and read like crazy. Um, and so that was sort of my training. And I don't think you necessarily need that, but yeah, it's a very competitive market. My first editor who was at Bloomsbury once said, came to talk to my class and she said, you know, if you want to write a book, read everything that's ever been written about your subject because you'll need to find a new angle. And that's really important. And, and if you can't really, if you're not saying anything new, then think of another book that you might want to write because that is really like the game you have to play now in publishing. And becoming a really good writer 
you can't just have something interesting to say, you have to learn how to say it well and beautifully and, and in a way that's compelling and immersive to the reader. And that is a craft that you have to work at. And, you know, I've been at this now for 20 some years. It's still not easy for me, but I work at it and it's developed. Like I've become, I think, a different and better writer the older I've gotten, which is nice. But I think people just need to know that you have to put in the time. Like it's not, you don't just get credit for living. You don't just get credit for having an interesting story. You have to work at making it interesting. And that is a craft issue more than anything else. So talk about your 55 year old uh, students that you teach. What is, what is it that they can really learn? First of all, I admire you for trying to teach writing. I used to think anybody could write and then I tried to teach writing and then I realized I couldn't teach anybody to write. It's really hard. And I think I, I came around to the thought process that people are either born natural writers or they're not. That's just my own opinion. I know that I haven't had that much experience in it, but I would love to know what you think about the older writers and what the chances are that they have. And they're probably different levels of writers. Mm -hmm. um, you know, again, I, I believe there's a lot of people out there with one killer story to get out and they can get it out in a yeoman's way. That's great. Um, and then they're the writerly writers, like more yeah. like you. I think some people are born writers. I think it's a combination. Like, I think you have to, to want to do it and you have to work really hard. But another thing I'll say is that, you know, writing is, I think you have to investigate your, or interrogate rather your motivations. So if your motivation in writing is to become rich and famous, probably want to change course there. Um, because that's not why writerly writers write. We write because we want to give something to the world that's going to that's going to transform people potentially, make them feel less lonely and possibly help them live another day. Like I see writing 100% as an act of service. And if you can reframe it in that way, I think that first of all takes the pressure off. Um especially in this capitalist culture where it's like how many copies did you sell? It's like I don't know, how many heart transplants did you make, doctor on the plane asking me questions? So uh, I think, you know, you can, like the, my older writers come to me with like a lot of experience, like they've had a career, they've had, you know, personal tragedies, they've had things to overcome or to, to metabolize. And so they're ready with their story. And, and one of the thing, one of the direct, directives that I give a lot of students who are just starting out is like, ground yourself in the body and in the senses and where you are like get out of the ticker tape in your head this is especially true for nonfiction. go out in the world and observe the world because no observation is neutral everything that you observe and how you observe it and how it lands on you emotionally and physically is unique to you so if you're out you know experiencing or looking or touching the world you're sharpening the lens through which you experience the world and that's the lens the reader wants to look through or experience the world through and so just ease up on the gas pedal there and you know go out and absorb the world and and if you white knuckle the computer you are never going to write and so sometimes the, the motivation and the ambition can get in the way of the freedom and playfulness that's required to actually write creatively, um, you know, without biting through your lip. 
What advantages do you find that your older writers have? Are there any? <laughs> yeah, they're um, mellower. They're they're more mellow. They're they're um, they're more compassionate. I would say in terms of their critique. This is like not across the board, but you know they they want to be a part of a community, and maybe it's like a, a lifelong dream they've always wanted to pursue, and they were a lawyer and worked 70 million hours a week. And now they're here in this community of people, you know, reading their stories and telling stories about their lives and being a community. And I think a lot of them really thrive because they've chosen to do it. Um, they have other financial means to, they have other ways to make money, which I think can be really important. Um, it can be really, the precarity of a writer's life can be really intense just like everyone's life, but um, yeah. So they, they bring a lot of wisdom and compassion and experiences that younger students don't have. However, I will say that my UCR undergraduates, a lot of them are single parents at a very young age. They've had really intense experiences in their communities. And so they also have many things to say. It's just that the urgency is different, I suppose. So let's talk about your new book coming up. Why don't you talk a little bit about it and um, what's unique about it and what you want people to know and why you think you're, as you say, you're contributing, you're putting it out there in the world to transform somebody. Mm -hmm. So it's called Frida Kahlo and My Left Leg. And I've had a lifelong obsession with Frida Kahlo. And part of it is because she would paint these, you know, she painted herself in 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 pain in these very real life situations and she didn't paint other people she painted her own face right she was you know famous for the self-portrait so in some ways there's a they're mirroring there with memoir and and how does a self-portrait function the way that memoir does and you know i had i wrote the book because i'd gone to the casa azul where she was born and or not where she was born where she lived and painted and they had just opened the room where she had died and I was pregnant with my daughter. My son had just died. And I was like walking in this throng of people. And then I didn't know this was happening. I didn't know this was an exhibit. We went into an exhibit and it was all of her corsets and her back braces and her artificial limb. And I just had a like a eureka experience, I suppose. I was just like, what? Like I had this huge bodily emotional. I was like, I have to write about this. Like, this is like the culmination of so many things right here. Um, you know, she has a corset that after she had a miscarriage and painted about it, she would wear it and it had a great big hole in the front to sort of symbolizing that. And all of these beautiful things that she put close to her body, nobody saw. They saw her self-portraits, but they didn't see these things. And I was like, ah, to write about this. So that's how the book was born. I think Basically, I, I think it's about, um, you know, I think sometimes we find people who came before us that were somehow in conversation with across time and history and profession. And I definitely felt that way with her, especially when I started reading her journal. I mean, I was in traction like she was. I had back braces. I had the leg. And, and it's so eerily like similar to sort of my own feelings and only, you know, she could paint and I can't. So I paint with words or whatever you'd say, but I, I definitely feel like it's, she's a, such a pop culture icon. Like, I mean, every time I go to CVS, I'm like, oh, look, socks with Frida Kahlo's face. And oh, look, tights with Frida's like face on them. So she's a very famous face. And I just thought, oh, what does it mean that we're all like sporting these like pins and magnets of her face? Like, 
no one really remembers that she was actually an amputee. So that's, that's kind of what became the book. And, and it also is about the way in which so many things fall apart, but that art remains. And that to me is something that has sustained me in many different situations. So, yeah, I mean, it's also a very um, lyrical book. It's more poetic than I would say my other books. Uh, and it's less formally structured. So it was in some ways it was a total demon to write, but in other ways it was incredibly liberating. It's funny, I saw that exhibit. Um, it oh, was yeah. at our house and yeah, I was there a couple of years ago. And um, yeah, I saw that exhibit because I was like, I didn't know anything about her history yeah. at yeah. all. She's I know um, I and I don't I know a lot about her. I mean I know so much about her, but then I don't know anything at all. I think that's kind of how it is when you're writing right. about somebody that's dead. Yeah. Right. But great. And and um what else would you like people to know? Because we're kind of at our end of our discussion, which is totally amazing. But what would you tell other women who are going through either a grief period like you've gone through, and I'm sure you have an entire book on that one. But, um, you know, just are there, you know, a few sort of tips and tricks either in the writing area or in bringing your whole self to it or how you find inspiration mm -hmm. that you can pass along as if we were your writers in your class? Yeah, um, I do. I would say create elastic time in your life. Um, that's how you're gonna, you know, prime your creative juices. And by that, I mean, just go out in the world and do nothing. It can be for 10 minutes, it could be for an hour. I make my students do this every, I'm like, just today you do nothing. Now, it doesn't mean watch Netflix. It means you just go out and sharpen your lens through which you observe the world with this idea that no observation is neutral. The second is, is surround yourself with women friends, <laughs> like get your people, get your network. Um, I think, you know, from my perspective, romantic relationships come and go, but kids, if they live, stay and friends, women, friends stay. And so that would be a second thing. And the third thing is, you know, it's not going to happen unless you do the time you have to, to commit the time, but you don't have to commit the time every day. You don't have to do it for five hours. Like we're so, so conditioned in this culture to think like, if you don't work for nine hours plus a day, you're not being productive. I often say to myself, okay, I have 10 minutes. I'm going to sit down. I'm going to write with intention. And I'm just going to see, I'm going to have an idea. I'm going to have a task I want to complete. We'll see how far it gets. If it stops in the middle, even better, then my brain will be thinking about it on its own while I'm doing other things. And I'll come back to it like with excitement. So if you approach it with excitement and an attitude of curiosity, that takes the dread away from, from the work. And usually the dread is attached to the outcome of whatever you're writing. So write for the sake of wanting to do it. Like if you have an important story you wanna tell, if you really are passionate about it, then, you, then you'll tell it, but you can't do it by beating yourself up or, or, or taking these drastic measures that will kill your creativity and frustrate you. And then it's a vicious cycle of procrastination. Yeah, I've never understood that. Sit down every day and oh. force yourself to write. I've been mean, man for me, invented that rule. 
<laughs> I'm telling you. You do think that really? Yeah. I do. Every, every writer I've gotten that advice from is a man, usually with oh. some behind the scenes taking care of him. Oh, very good. Okay. That's interesting. What woman has had the opportunity to sit there for that long? Right. Virginia right. Woolf, Kate, maybe, but she was fabulously wealthy. Right. right. So it's a very, you know, most people, most working women do not have four hours the same time every day to work. Right. right. So, right. you know, it's like, and you don't have to write in the same place. You don't have to light a candle. You just have to do it for like when you can and be realistic about it. Right. Amazing. So one last question, we are over time, but I'm just going to ask you one last question, just because I think it would go unsaid. What gives you such a positive attitude, Emily? You've always had such a, you've always had a very upbeat. I mean, like when you talk about the tragedies that you've been through and you've seen, you don't present like that kind of person at all. Mm. Is, is that something natural to your spirit or, or what is that? I don't know. I mean, it's, it's, I think, I mean, I think a lot of it is that, I mean, this is going to sound like maybe kind of off topic, but, you know, I think I, as a kid, I knew that I was loved hundred percent unconditionally and that that was a baseline for me. I think that's why my attitude is this way. And it's not always like this, but I mean, I just kind of feel I've always had this kind of drive to survive and thrive but I think I was able to, I was able to do that or enabled by my parents. Just like, I mean, I've thrown so much stuff at them and they're just like, okay, you know? Uh, and, and I, I say that just because I realize with my daughter, when she's, when she's kicking up attitude, which kids do, I'm like, it doesn't matter. Like I'm her baseline. Like there's, there's no way that's ever going to, anything's ever going to happen where I won't love her. And I think that's like a foundational thing that a lot of people do not have and have to recreate in their other relationships. And so I think that's where it, the root of it for me. It's so interesting. Cause when I had my first child, you'll laugh, but I remember thinking, cause I didn't, I, I didn't have your kind of childhood, but I just had parents that were broken up and very dysfunctional and I didn't want to have children. And when I finally did, I remember thinking, you know, even if, when I was held that baby in my hands, even if he became like Jeffrey Dahmer, mm -hmm. I would probably still go to prison and visit him Yes, because I can't imagine not loving this person. Like, how do you get to that? I mean, if they do something horrific and awful, do you still love them? Yeah. And you, you know, like, I just remember this like profound, not understanding because my parents were not, were not good at that. They, you know, yeah they, they were not able to get to that point at all. And it was such a, you know, when people say, as you get older, you understand your parents more. I got older and understood them less. I think that happens a lot. Yes. I really do. Like, exactly. I think, it, you know, it's like, it, it, I also have a hard time, you know, there's so much child abuse and it's gotten so much worse in the pandemic. And I literally don't get it. Yeah. It just, it's, yeah. it's so like counter human or, yeah, or, you can so, understand it though. If you have no support and yes. you have no, you know, yes, history exactly. and you have motivations, you don't understand and money is an issue and yep. you're, you know, I mean, it, you can understand how it can drive you nuts. It can yes, totally, you absolutely. know, kids can drive you mad oh, yeah, totally. if you don't have the right support system. So yes, that's also very key. 
Well, awesome. I can't wait to read the book. And when does it come out in June? June 21st, I think. Yeah. All right. Well, we're going to try to make that all tee up. And um, now that I know that you're, you're used to teaching women our age, I'm going to drag you into a Covey class of some sort. Oh, great. I would love that. So that would be fantastic. Emily, thank you so thank much you. for your thank time. You for I so me. appreciate it. Yes. It was really fun. Thanks. All right, See you care. later. Bye. All right. So I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Emily. Wow, I did. That was, she's an amazing person. I'm always blown away by the way that ordinary people deal with their lives and become extraordinary people as they grow up because nobody can control what happens to them. I mean, as she says that too. And you never know what's gonna be thrown in front of you. And the key is to be like water and go around those rocks. That's kind of what life is all about. I think Um, as you get older, that's what you discover. And if you believe that, I hope that you will come and join us at the Covey Club, where we have articles for you, all written by some of the best writers in the world. We teach three times a week. We do coaching at least one time a week. We have a build your business group where you can come and work on your entrepreneurial ideas. We have masterminds. We are going to hopefully be traveling again in November to a spa. We have getaways. So I hope you will join us on all of those things that we do. Come see what we do over at CoveyClub.com and become part of our tribe because it is an amazing group of people. And these are women who are going to lift you up and hold you until you find the way into your next part of your life and your reinvention. So thank you for being here and hope you stay tuned.